0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell.
1: Kenyon is perpetrating one of the most enormous frauds on the world and on the United States in particular and on my home state, and on New Orleans. And uh, if it goes much further, uh, there's just no telling where Mr. Garrison will go. What is his motive? Why is he doing it, in your opinion? He reminds me of Huey Long. And he reminds me of a combination of Huey Long and uh, some things that I've read about Dr. Goebbels. He's a little bit of both. What is his motive? Well, Walter, that's open to conjecture. Uh he can go anywhere with this thing. If he if he convinces the public that he's real and that this farce is real, this circus that he's putting on down there is real, uh, he's going to try and ultimately drag in the CIA and he's going to drag in left and right and, as he says through the looking glass, black is white and white is black. Uh, I think he's the one that's black and white at the same time. Uh, he can go anywhere. He can say, well, your government did this. He can say, uh, there's just no telling what he's going to try and say. At the rate he's going, it, Maybe tomorrow you'll be it. Did he offer you anything to help him? Yes. uh, Mr. Garrison said that if I needed any financial assistance or did did I have any business problems or anything, that I could get him. That I could get anything that I wanted to help him. And uh, I said, no, I don't need any assistance. Do you have any uh, indication of what he wants you to testify to and why he considers you such an important witness? Wow. He could get me, I guess, if he could put enough pressure on me, or if he had me in his pocket, the way he has an awful lot of people down there, he could get, uh, uh, he could probably get me to say just about anything he wanted me to say.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 182. And yes, I'm once again calling an audible. I know at the end of episode 181, I said that the next episode would be about Randy Ellinger, an individual who was involved in the Homer raid. But after I got finished with that episode, it just didn't have enough oomph to it, and I decided to get back out of the weeds for just a second maybe these are weeds we're still in but they're not as tall a set of weeds as I was just in so what does that mean for the show today well what we're going to do is bring you another wild and wacky witness and his name is Gordon Novell and what makes him kind of interesting at least to me is that he's not well like a Perry Russo kind of guy This isn't his 15 minutes of fame upon the stage. Gordon Novell is an absolute character in his own right. A rather intelligent man who, at the time, was working at least in a contract relationship with the CIA. Garrison entrusted him. And you might say, in the beginning, there might have been, well, less skepticism on Novell's part. But at the end of the day, Novell, too fell the way of the CIA, and really became an infiltrator in the investigation, working for the CIA. But once more, his life just didn't end, at least in terms of colorful interactions at the precipice of the Clay Shaw trial. Oh, on the contrary, What you just heard a few moments ago is Gordon Novell at age 29, at the height of the garrison investigation. What you'll hear at the end of this podcast episode is Gordon Novell in his later years. It's an interesting matriculation, and I hope you stick around for the rest of the episode to hear it at the end. Jim Garrison's successor to the seat of District Attorney was Harry Connick Sr., and Connick Sr. brought about charges against Novell for conspiracy to firebomb part of New Orleans by balloons on behalf of a World's Fair a World's Fair that Novell was promoting. He would go on to work as a private investigator for John DeLorean. Remember him? The man who presented us with the stainless steel car that was going to change everything in the industry. Without going into the details of that, at least the bottom line was that DeLorean was essentially framed or entrapped in a cocaine transaction. And it was Gordon Novell as a private investigator that uncovered what was essentially a conspiracy between Britain's conservative party and U.S. and British intelligence agents to close DeLorean's manufacturing plant in Northern Ireland. Eventually, DeLorean would successfully defend himself and would attribute much of that success to the investigative work that was spearheaded by Novell. Oh, that case gets even wilder. Part of the defense was an audio tape which was made public by Hustler magazine. Remember the wheelchair publisher of that magazine, Larry Flint? Well, that was one of the very pieces of evidence that revealed that DeLorean was actually the victim of a sting operation. When Flint refused to name Novell as the supplier of the tape, Flint himself was tried and convicted and then sentenced to a five and a half month stint as a result of his contempt of court. Oh, the big events keep on coming for Gordon Novell. Novell had a long-standing relationship with Ramsey Clark. As you recall, Ramsey Clark was the attorney general who took over after RFK left office early on in the Johnson administration. Novell was hired as chief investigator for Ramsey Clark in the aftermath of the Waco incident that occurred in 1993. You see, Ramsey Clark provided legal counsel For some of the surviving members of Branch Davidian, as well as more than a hundred members, family members, of those who had died or were injured in the confrontation. Novell made an assertion that his analysis of a tape made by a forward-looking infrared camera that was placed on a Night Stalker aircraft indicated serious misconduct by federal agents Who were firing upon people that were inside of the compound while they were trying to flee the fire? Novell had other connections as well. Former CIA Director William Colby collaborated with Novell on the investigation of misconduct in the higher levels of command in the FBI related to the same incident. Novell himself claims that he was the one who originally made allegations that the United States federal agents who participated in that raid were guilty of murdering David Koresh's followers during the Waco siege. He was a private investigator of some note, and he even gave advice to people like Michael Jackson and Jean-Claude Van Damme. And for a little bit of a cherry on a cake, in 1974, he would be called out by columnist Jack Anderson is having consulted with White House staff member Charles Colson, You remember that name from the Watergate affair? Well, Colson would consult with Novell about the possible use of a deglossing device that could erase tapes, original copies of the Watergate tapes, tapes that were stored at the White House and the CIA. And the plan was to be able to destroy them with this deglossing device from a distance. Eventually, both Colson and Novell mutually decided not to do that, and the reason they decided not to do that, ostensibly, was because of the danger to other national security tapes and computers. Apparently, Colson would say later that such a plan never came close to development, but nevertheless, he did discuss it with Gordon Novell, and the point here is that Novell, from almost in his early 20s, had friends in the White House and other high places including the CIA. Oh, this man was a character. In an episode of the PBS program Frontline, which aired on February 9th, 1993, Novell said that he saw photos of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover engaged in oral sex with his aide, Clyde Tolson. If you'll recall, there have been strong allegations over the years that Hoover was a homosexual and his partner was Clyde Tolson who he made, over the years, the number 2 man in charge at the FBI. The Frontline episode incorporated the work of Anthony Summers, whose book, Official and Confidential, The Secret Life of J. Edgar Hoover, alleged that Novell was shown these pictures by CIA counterintelligence chief James Angleton. Oh, what a web this guy Novell weaves. As the garrison investigation and Clay Shaw trial heated up, In October 1967, Garrison would do an interview for Playboy magazine. And just as I read in a prior podcast episode, in the Playboy interview, Garrison accused Novell of being a paid employee of the CIA. And some would say that he hinted at complicity in the JFK assassination. Well, Novell didn't like that at all, and subsequently he filed a $10 million liable suit against Garrison and Playboy, and he did so in federal court. He used a quite famous attorney at the time, a man named Elber Gertz, who was an expert in reputation damage and smear campaigns. One of the most intriguing things about this civil suit is that Novell was deposed, as you might expect, and later Gertz would write a book entitled To Life, and in it he would reveal that Novell's deposition was perhaps as many as a 1,000 pages long. We've never seen that deposition, but wouldn't it be interesting? And the reason we haven't seen it is because the case never went to trial. It was dismissed by Judge William J. Campbell after the defendants moved for a reconsideration of their motions. Well, all that is pretty colorful stuff, but how does that have a connection with the Clayshaw trial? Well, let's pivot to that part of the story. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 182 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. During Clay Shaw's preliminary hearing, Novell was twice subpoenaed to appear before the Orleans Parish grand jury. The second time he was subpoenaed, Novell did not show up. And you know why? Because he'd already left the state. And in order to get Novell extradited, Garrison's office issued two warrants for Novell's arrest. The first arrest warrant was based on him being a material witness in the Clay Shaw investigation, which historically labeled him as the missing witness, in Garrison's assassination conspiracy theory. The second arrest warrant was based on a new accusation. Garrison accused Novell of having burglarized the munitions bunker in Homa. During the same time frame, on May 25, 1967, the New Orleans State's Item published a detailed article on the Clay Shaw case. In that article, the New Orleans State's Item produced a handwritten letter that experts identified as Novell's handwriting, a letter which referred to a CIA connection to his advertising agency, the Evergreen Agency. Until then, Novell had publicly denied any CIA connections. After the letter was revealed, Novell's attorney, Stephen Plotkin, said that Novell wrote the letter and that Novell had CIA connections in New Orleans. On April 25, 1967, After Novell made those statements about his association with the CIA, Howard Osborne, who was director of security for the CIA, would go on record that Novell's assertions about his connection to the CIA were completely false. Doesn't that sound familiar? Mr. Osborne stated that Gordon Novell, David William Ferry, and Sergio Arcacha Smith had never been of operational interest to the CIA. He also stated that the Evergreen Advertising Agency, of which Novell worked for, had no connection whatsoever with the CIA. Those facts would be stipulated to J. Edgar Hoover, and two days later he would send a memo to the special agent in charge of the New Orleans office, stating just that. Alan Weberman, another author who wrote Coup d'etat in America, the CIA, and the assassination of John F. Kennedy, would say this about Novell in his book. Novell ran an electronics firm in New Orleans, which specialized in selling equipment used for buggings. His lawyer claimed that he held a position identical to that of E. Howard Hunt, who himself was an intermediary between the Cuban exiles and the CIA. After initially denying that he had any part in the burglary, Novell stated that it was, and I quote, it was one of the most patriotic burglaries in history and that it was done under the direction of the CIA as part of the Bay of Pigs operation. Novell confessed he had been given a key to the bunker and that the people he had met there, Arcacha Smith and David Ferry, were also working for the CIA. Novell also worked with the propaganda into the invasion. As a director of a CIA front called the Evergreen Advertising Agency, he was responsible for transmitting cryptographic messages to alert the exiles to the invasion date. Hunt was in charge of domestic propaganda for the Bay of Pigs operation and was probably Novell's superior. While holding off his extradition, Novell organized a news conference in Columbus, Ohio, which he publicly defended himself against Garrison's accusation of burglary. During the conference, reporters were told that there were CIA operations in New Orleans, an advertising agency in New Orleans, which, again, was the one I just mentioned and operated by Novell, and that they did indeed serve as a CIA front, and that the raid on the Homa munitions bunker was a patriotic act. Later on, Plankin further specified Novell's role as an, and I quote, intermediary, but added that Novell's work had, and I quote, little or nothing to do with the Bay of Pigs invasion and certainly had absolutely nothing to do with the assassination of President Kennedy. The extradition proceedings were eventually dropped on July 3rd, 1967, and that was due to defects in the extradition papers themselves. For those of you who have not listened to episode 181 on the Homa heist, I'll just say a couple of things. In 1961, Novell was part of a group of people who either stole or transferred weapons from a munitions bunker in Homa, Louisiana, which was owned by the Schlumberger Company. Novell claimed the theft had been planned by Guy Bannister and David Ferry, who at the time were actively involved in the anti-communist anti-Castro community there in New Orleans. According to a report in the New Orleans State's Items newspaper, Bannister served as a munitions supplier for the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion and he continued to deal weapons from his office until 1963. We mentioned earlier, and it was reported in Gus Russo's book, the existence of a letter of Mark that was signed by Robert Kennedy, who was the U.S. Attorney General at the time, and which supposedly gave Bannister the go-ahead to, and I quote, liberate the weaponry, although the letter has never been shown to exist. Novell claimed to have received a key to the bunker from Bannister. The stolen munitions were allegedly stored at Bannister's office in Camp Street, at Ferry's apartment, and at least another third location at one of the Lake Pontchartrain training camps. Novell claimed that the act was not illegal, but had been arranged by the CIA as part of Operation Mongoose. And we'll talk about Operation Mongoose soon enough. After Garrison indicted him, Novell eventually ended up in McLean, Virginia, where he took a lie detector test from a retired Army intelligence agent, which, of course, proved that he was innocent. (laughs) Right. Right. While he was away from New Orleans, two women who had taken over Novell's apartment discovered a note written in his hand, which was seemingly addressed to his CIA contact. And let me read it to you here. During the planning of the Bay of Pigs invasion, Howard Hunt also worked for DoubleCheck. Isn't that interesting? Well, what was DoubleCheck? Well, it was a dummy electronics firm located just outside Miami. Headquarters proved to be an office building converted for our use and disguised as an electronics firm, Hunt stated. Novell would take a lie detector test, one that he himself had arranged for, and lo and behold, he would pass, stating that the burglary was not a burglary at all, but a war materials pickup made at the direction of his CIA contact. You see, even if Garrison believed, as he did, that this was a war materials transfer, he had to make it into a crime so that he could get Novell back into his jurisdiction in New Orleans and question him under oath. But wait a minute. All that's very interesting, but let's stop and back up just a little bit and get into some of the very colorful aspects of Novell's earlier years. He was a man who had a self-proclaimed IQ of 200 and who was interested in a lot of things, including even drag racing. In the early 1960s, Novell served as director of operations for the Bourbon Street Pavilion at the 1964 New York World's Fair. The pavilion reportedly achieved the highest gross income of any single commercial pavilion at the fair. And for this work, Novell was called an entrepreneurial protege and boy wonder as described in the magazine Variety. In 1960, Novell bought a drag strip in Hammond, Louisiana, together with associate Ranny Ellinger. Later, he produced auto shows in New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and Atlanta. Novell grew up in New Orleans, living as an only child with his mother. He graduated from East Jefferson High School in 1956, and he spent a brief period studying engineering, at Northrop Aeronautical Institute of Technology. He also went to the University of Southern California or USC, and he took motion picture directing classes at the Pasadena Playhouse. He met his former wife, Marlene Mancuso, a Miss New Orleans, in 1958 at LSU. According to the final report issued by the Assassination Records Review Board, Novell came to the attention of Garrison after allegedly making claims that he was an employee of the CIA in 1963, and that he knew both Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby. Isn't that interesting? A person that shows a connection between the two. Journalist Dick J. Rivas had stated that Novell's work at Garrison's office was, and I quote, amply documented, and quoted Novell saying, I was working as Garrison's chief of security, while at the same time working for the White House to destabilize Garrison's operation. No joke, he was working for the White House. In 1997, an FBI report was released which stated that Novell worked with Garrison in attempts to fake photographic evidence to link Fidel Castro with the assassination. Well, what do you think about that one? True or false? I'm not making a comment either way. I'm just stating the facts. Novell would go on to do all sorts of crazy things. He had big ideas. He was a big thinker. And we'll share some of the interview material that was collected later in his life. When he died, one of the individuals who had interviewed him in years prior, Jerry Pippen, would say this about him. It was not unexpected, the death of Gordon Novell. He had been very ill. But it still comes as a shock. The 74-year-old Novell was still behaving like the cold warrior he evidently had been in his earlier life. The Bay of Pigs, the JFK assassination, being held by radicals in a Beirut jail while trying to free an American hostage. Those are just a few of the scrapes that Gordon Novell, private investigator, had endured. In an earlier interview, which is now part of a tribute to Novell, broadcast just a few days after his death, Novell discussed some of the events in his life. Yet, from off-the-record conversations with him over the years, we were aware that there was much more to tell. However, the Grim Reaper came to Gordon Novell the middle of the night in a nursing home in Los Angeles, taking him and his stories to the other side. Gordon was a child of the South. He loved New Orleans, Louisiana in particular, and never really left it in spirit even though he'd been hanging out on the West Coast for many years. Born in a show business heritage, Gordon spent his early years at Pasadena Playhouse, training for the big movie career that never happened. His life turned out to be a real-life incarnation of your favorite spy thriller, combined with little two-bit P.I. stories. And for those who knew him up close and personal, a man of great social conscience. So much so that in his later years, he dedicated his pursuit to free or cheap energy, which he was convinced the U.S. government had back-engineered from UFO crashes. Many have asked if foul play was involved. It most certainly could have been a murder, but there is little evidence of that. However, if there is a suspect, it is more likely, in my opinion, to have been from the corporate energy companies of the world as Gordon was getting very close to the development of, quote, free energy, which he envisioned would free the world from the debt of big oil and gas. Others suspect his lifelong dedication to black operations and friendship with CIA agents ended, as it frequently does with the clandestine operatives. Yes, ending in death when usefulness is no longer needed. It could have been one of those factors, or it simply could have been that a life of hard living, wild women, and various stressful close encounters with law enforcement, military types, and the underworld characters he knew took a toll on him at 74. His body had nothing more to give, even though his spirit and his drive were still there. And I knew it based on my last conversation with him. Many of the people on my staff over the years never could understand the fascination I had with bad boy Gordon. But once you got past the PI image, there was a small boy quality about him that included thinking and the kind of thinking that comes from the best of mankind and knowing that the people he dealt with were not the best, and in fact, rotten to the core, even though they were just misguided in their devotion to God and country. Gordon Novell was called many names, but as Robert Morningstar dubbed him in an expose on British Petroleum and the Gulf oil spill, calling him the Noble Dragon. As all of us know far too well, life on this planet for humans is temporary, and it was time for Gordon to move on, leaving one to wonder if there is an eternity for men's souls. What's happening with Novell right now? In the liable case between Novell, Playboy, and Garrison, there were certain facts that were stipulated by both parties. It's as close as we'll get to testimony taken under oath. So here we go. Sometime prior to June 24, 1967, Garrison agreed to grant an interview to Eric Norton, a freelance writer for publication in Playboy magazine. The request was initiated by Playboy. Garrison was not paid for the interview, nor did he pay anyone for its publication. The entire article was approved by Garrison prior to its publication in the October 1967 issue of Playboy magazine. The verification of the facts contained in the interview consisted of submitting the galley proofs to Defendant Garrison and to Eric Norden. The galley proofs were also sent to Playboy Research Department whose normal practice for verification is by checking other accounts of the subject matter previously published in the news media and in reference works. Playboy made no effort to contact any of the persons mentioned in the interview, other than Garrison himself, to verify any of the statements concerning them. Sometime in February 1967, Mr. Novell, knowing that one David Ferry figured prominently in defendant Garrison's investigation of the assassination President Kennedy voluntarily disclosed to Mr. Garrison that he, Novell, David Ferry, and one Sergio Arcacha Smith, the head of an anti-Castro-Cuban refugee organization, had been associated in 1961 in the removal of military munitions from a bunker in Houma, Louisiana. Mr. Novell told Mr. Garrison that he had been asked to participate in the removal of munitions by Arcacha Smith who had requested him to wear dark clothes and come armed. That the entrance to the bunker was accomplished with the aid of bolt cutters. That the removal was carried out under cover of darkness, and the plaintiff and his companions had posted a lookout with a walkie-talkie radio set in order to avoid being apprehended. Mr. Novell received a subpoena requiring him to appear on March 16, 1967, and testified before the Orleans Parish Grand Jury in connection with its investigation of the assassination of President Kennedy. On that date, Mr. Novell appeared in response to the subpoena, but was told to come back a week later. Prior to that date, Mr. Novell drafted a letter to Mr. Weiss, informing Mr. Weiss that Garrison issued the subpoena and intended to inquire about matters which, and I quote, may be classified top-secret activities of individuals connected with the Double Check Corporation of Miami in the first quarter of 1961. The letter further advised Mr. Weiss that he, Novell, had, and I quote, no current contact available to inform of this situation. So I took the liberty of writing you direct and appraising you of the current situation expecting you to forward this through appropriate channels, end quote. Mr. Novell said he believed that the Double Check Corporation had been a front entity of the United States Central Intelligence Agency. After drafting the letter, Mr. Novell left New Orleans. The letter was found in his former apartment. On March 23, 1967, the Criminal District Court for Orleans Parish, Louisiana, ordered the arrest of Mr. Novell as a material witness in connection with the investigation into the assassination of President Kennedy. On April 1, 1967, Mr. Novell was arrested in Gahanna, Ohio and held in custody in Columbus, Ohio, as a fugitive witness prior to being released on bond. On March 19, 1968, the Ohio Court of Appeals overruled a lower court order that would otherwise require Mr. Novell to return and testify before the Orleans Parish grand jury. On April 13, 1967, Garrison filed a bill of information in the criminal court of Orleans Parish, Louisiana, charging Mr. Novell with conspiracy to commit burglary in connection with the 1961 removal of munitions in which Mr. Novell still insists he participated. On August 9, 1967, the District Attorney of Terrebonne, Louisiana, also filed a bill of information against Mr. Novell, accusing him of burglary of the munitions bunker. The Governor of Ohio refused to extradite Mr. Novell on the conspiracy to burglarize and the burglary charges. The charges against him in both Orleans and Terrebonne parishes related to burglary of the bunker are still pending. Mr. Novell's involvement in the assassination investigation was described in many articles and stories in numerous publications throughout the country. Novell and his attorneys appeared on television news programs in Columbus, Ohio, in New Orleans, Louisiana, answering questions or making statements concerning Novell's relationship with Garrison and the assassination. On or about June 14, 1967, Novell sent a telegram to Garrison in which he stated that if granted immunity from prosecution, he would return to New Orleans to testify on various matters, including number one, international fraud, number two, public and official bribery, number three, intimidation, number four, in my opinion, the probable murder of David Ferry. Number five, seditious treason. Number six, mysterious intelligence activities from November 1959 to date in the southern quadrant of the USA and certain islands off of Florida. Number seven, hot war games and cold munitions transfers. Number eight, ten, 1950 Model Canadian Surplus Vampire Jets Support Fighter Aircraft. Number 9. Certain Cuban-Anglo-French Sabotage Affairs of Early 1961. In his complaint, the plaintiff alleges the garrison made certain statements intended to be understood as saying that the plaintiff was part of a conspiracy to kill the President of the United States and that plaintiff had committed the crime of burglary. He further alleges that in making such statements, Garrison acted maliciously and wrongfully with the specific intent to discredit the plaintiff and to destroy his reputation. The complaint also alleges that the charges contained in the interview were completely false and were known by HMH Publishing Company, the publisher of Playboy, to be completely false or were published by HMH with a reckless disregard as to whether they were true or not. In the end, in the judge's words, he would say, Upon my own review of the record, including the stipulation of facts of which must have been recited above, the depositions and the answers to interrogatories propounded by all parties, I find no evidence by which this plaintiff can sustain his heavy burden of proving actual malice. Against either of these defendants. As I said, the counts were dismissed. The judge would go on to say as to his involvement in the assassination investigation, Novell voluntarily disclosed his association with David Ferry, whom he knew figured prominently in that investigation. When he received a subpoena requiring him to appear and testify before the Orleans grand jury in connection with the investigation of the assassination, he left New Orleans. It is stipulated that the criminal district court for Orleans Parish ordered the arrest of Novell as a material witness in connection with the assassination investigation. Prior to that departure, he left behind a letter describing the so-called connection with the CIA. He later sent a telegram to Garrison in which he stated that if granted immunity, he could testify in various matters, In short, the plaintiff has set forth no evidence and the court's own examination of the record reveals none, which establishes any malice on the part of Playboy when publishing this story of international interest as told to them by a prominent public official. Garrison, in his book On the Trail of the Assassins, had his own little bit to say about Gordon Novell, and here it is. I learned that the agency was actually attempting to obstruct our investigation. This only added to my suspicions that the CIA, or some part of it, had been deeply involved in the assassination. The agency's attempted obstruction of our investigation became increasingly perceptible when we tried to extradite Gordon Novell from Ohio. This legal maneuver grew out of the clandestine visit by some of Guy Bannister's associates, to the blimp base at Homa, Louisiana. They had removed munitions from the Schlumberger bunker in the middle of the night and brought them into New Orleans. Some time after we learned about this jaunt, an informant advised us that Novell had taken a photograph of the truck used in picking up the munitions. Subsequently, Novell had sold the photograph to Walter Sheridan of NBC. I discussed this unusual case with the DA of HOMA, and he insisted that as far as his jurisdiction was concerned, the removal of the munitions from the Schlumberger bunker had been a burglary. In my judgment, the transport of the burglarized material into New Orleans had been a felony as well, and the disposal of evidence relating to the offense, that is, the sale of the photograph to NBC, also was a crime committed in new orleans however before i could question novell about this latest adventure involving guy banister in his personal war against cuba novell picked up word that i was looking for him probably from one of the half dozen cia men that i had naively embraced as associates and novell hit the road we located novell in ohio and moved for his extradition in april 1967 We wanted to know why the ammunition had been taken from the Schlumberger bunker, why it had been brought into New Orleans, and why the photograph of the truck had been sold to Walter Sheridan. In the following weeks, Gordon Novell, through interviews and press conferences in Ohio, began providing the public with more enlightenment about some of the CIA's activities more so than we had been able to develop in the previous several months. Among other things, he announced that the Schlumberger bunker business had been a CIA enterprise all the way. Yes, this cat was a crazy guy. Spooky a little bit. And there is a pun intended there. He would go on to tell many stories about his understanding and connection with the Illuminati and the Majestic 12. The deep state elements that we hear so much about today. They were a thing of great illusion then, and most people that spoke of them were considered a bit crazy. Perhaps not so much today. But I'm just saying. Yes, Gordon Novell was an anomaly. He said many things, and many things he said were not true. It was difficult, I think, for most people to distinguish when he was telling the truth and when he was just playing lying or engaging in an incredible level of hyperbole. But there is no doubt that at the end of the day, he was in the middle of a lot of crazy things. And he was not your average witness. And he simply adds to the tale that when telling the story of the JFK assassination, yes, fact is more interesting than fiction. And Gordon Novell is just one more character that reinforces that theme. You know, that was a ramble. We were all over the place. I read a lot in this episode from various sources. And the reason I didn't do too much in the way of personalized storytelling on this one is that there is so much available on Gordon Novell. You know, did he know more? In later years, Novell would write a book. It has a very limited circulation. It's very difficult to find. In fact, I think I saw one copy of it on eBay. It's a fictional book, typical as a CIA player would do in those days, because under their secrecy agreements, they couldn't write a nonfiction book about their experiences. So his fictional account of that conspiracy reveals much, whether it's true or not, we don't know because the book itself is labeled as fiction in it. Though we know that he offered to pour his heart out about the assassination to Garrison. So the real mystery remains What did he know? What true facts did he know about the JFK assassination? Whatever they were, if any, he took it with him to his grave. Gordon Novell was 25 years old when the president was assassinated. Even at that young and tender age, he was quite involved already with the CIA. He would die in October of 2012, about 11 years ago now, Like so many of the critical players in this passion play, they're gone now. There will be no staring them down and hearing the truth as finally revealed. For most, that is no longer possible. He was 74 years of age when he passed. Not particularly old, but not young. And just about at a date and a time frame, when most of the rest of the JFK eyewitnesses to the assassination or the assassination plot would perish from the earth. We are by definition left with an incomplete record, hoping one day to find a few more pieces to fill in and complete the puzzle. Novell most assuredly knew more than what came to light publicly, even though he would claim that was not the case. Just like other men in the disinformation business, men like Howard Hunt, men like Frank Sturgis, he would tell enough lies that no one really knew when he was telling the truth. Sound familiar? It was a world they lived in in the 1960s, the 70s, and then in the 80s and the 90s. It's now the world we live in. Kind of crazy that the world we live in today now makes us look back and see that world so much more clearly. now, as promised at the top of this podcast episode, here are some of the more interesting snippets from Gordon Novell's interview conducted as part of the Camelot Project.
2: My name is Gordon Novell. Uh, I have been involved in things like Watergate and JFK's assassination, and the Delorean drama and Waco and others that would be better not mentioned. We're interested in the um, plutopian enhancement of the economy from about 44 trillion GDP currently to about a quadrillion a year in about 10 years and making everybody about 100 times more wealthy and spreading the wealth out and causing equalization and people don't have to work if they don't have to pay for energy.
3: So Gordon, you are a very, um, let's say, notorious individual and um, (laughs) we are incredibly pleased to be able to interview you today and you've got an incredible project that we're not going to talk about at all I don't think, but um, you've certainly raised our curiosity and our admiration by um, the amazing amount of work you're going into to actually, can I say, bring free energy to the planet? Hopefully. Hopefully? Yeah. Okay. Tell me a little bit about who you are for people that have never heard. I know it's hard to believe, but have never heard of Gordon Novell.
2: Well, I'm, uh, I don't know how to, my, my name is Gordon Novell. Uh, I have been involved in things like Watergate and JFK's assassination and the Lorian drama and Waco and uh, others that would be better not mentioned that were more intelligence-oriented or foreign intelligence-oriented, so I kind of stay away from talking about that.
3: Okay. um,
2: And I have never worked for the CIA. I'm not a CIA agent. I'm affiliated, I work with, and we have a mutual admiration society based upon my relationship with the individuals I work with.
3: Okay. And but can you don't name don't those individuals or not?
2: Uh, I prefer not to at this time. I think it would be a better idea not to, to mention them. They they're they're known, but uh, there's no I, I don't need the the ego trip of that association.
3: Okay. And right now you actually have a project that you're coming to Hollywood to uh, a, a movie. Yeah, and that's okay yeah, to say, yeah, right? We, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, yeah. We're doing a trilogy uh, project on a trilogy of films called Kingdoms Come with uh, my co-producer, Doug Ivanovich, and uh, we're currently uh, in the process of funding the project in, in the hundreds of millions of dollar level.
3: Okay. And... Is it correct that the CIA is actually backing your other project? Is that, is that something you want to say? Well, they're,
2: they're, they're interested in supporting and endorsing a number of things that I'm doing because they are capable of changing things like global warming and getting rid of global warming and getting rid of the chaotic conditions of our current new world order and that kind of thing, getting rid of the murder and mayhem that goes on in the planet.
3: Okay, and this is now, would you say, the good side of the CIA? Um, there's more than one definitely. side to the, the CIA, is the, there not?
2: The CIA has multiple sides, but it's been my experience over the years that they're basically the only good guys in the entire United States government. They're really patriots. Most of them are patriots, and I've never known... I personally have never known them to do anything criminal, uh, ever, and uh, they didn't kill John Kennedy, and they, uh, they, they didn't kill a lot of people that they've been accused of causing the death of, but th- I, I don't know that to be true, so I can tell you that my experience with them has been like dealing with Eagle Scouts.
3: Okay. Um, how long have you been dealing with them?
2: Since about age 20.
3: Did you have anything to do with the death of Robert Kennedy or Jack Kennedy?
2: No, absolutely not. Now, why
3: do people think that you did?
2: Because I was uh, first uh, became, uh, I was working at the White House and then uh, on a counterintelligence project that was kind of important. And then I got uh, referenced over to Garrison and he made me as chief of security and and I discovered that he was fabricating evidence and he found out that I had discovered that and it turned it over to NBC. So he decided that the best way was to make me his most important material witness since he wasn't accusing me of a crime. But it cost me a lot of grief and a lot of people thought I was involved, which I wasn't, never was involved in that.
3: Okay, I and have
2: one of the best alibis in the world.
3: And you actually... Um You have a lot of feeling um, or simpatico. Isn't that true with uh, what Kennedy stood for?
2: Yeah, I I was in favor of his uh, revelations uh, that were apparently about to happen, having to do with extraterrestrials and the technologies. And I think that they kept him in the dark on a lot of stuff. And it was one of the reasons that motivated him to want to go to the moon. So I was very pro-John F. Kennedy.
3: Okay. Very pro. Very pro. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And what about Robert Kennedy?
2: I was personally affiliated with the the Attorney General uh, during the Garrison thing and afterwards uh, when he ran for president. And my only feeling about him is is that uh, he probably helped precipitate a lot of the problems that that caused the assassination of his brother.
3: Okay. So. About chasing um, the
2: mafia, for example. Because uh-huh. the mafia supported his brother's election sub- substantively, and they got very angry at him, along with folks like the ex-Galen org or Galen organization of the Nazis and other people like that that were out to and Majestic, I might add, okay. were really all out to get him and didn't want him to.
3: So Majestic to do. was around back then. Yeah. And did did they have something to do with the uh, death of Robert Kennedy?
2: I don't think that they had anything to do with the death of Robert Kennedy. If Robert Kennedy was murdered by an assassination, it was a Manchurian Canada type of thing, and I don't know who engineered it. But uh, I've never, ever known an individual at the CIA to ever indicate to me that they were part of any plot, and I've known a lot of them, including directors.
3: And what about John Kennedy? Was that a Manchurian candidate as well?
2: Uh, no, I think it was just a patsy. You know, Oswald was uh, picked uh, for his role in maybe one of a dozen plots that were being hatched off at the time, and he it just he just happened to be in the right place at the right time to get the the pin the tail on the donkey.
3: Okay, so how many shots were fired?
2: I mean, you can, near as I can hear, there were like three or four. So, you know, I don't, I don't believe that he did it, that anybody could have done that the way they claim he did it. And I couldn't do it, and I don't know anybody that could do it. And so I don't believe it. I don't believe the Malik or Carcano did the deed. And it may have well been used in the deed, but did it actually cause the death? I'm not sure what did it. Could have been frangible bullets coming from somewhere else up on the grass, you know, et cetera.
3: Uh huh. And did you think that, um, I guess, Lyndon Johnson or anyone else had had a hand in it?
2: If they did, they certainly kept it away from me because I was working with the Chief of Staff at the White House at the time. When the Garrison thing came down, I was working with the Chief of Staff, and I never knew any involvement by the chief of staff or Mr. Johnson, and I was very friendly with both of them. So Uh the answer is I don't think that, I think they were, they were were just down the pecking order of power that runs the world, and they just happened to be conveniently in the places where they were at the time.
3: Okay, so, well, as far as Majestic or the Illuminati or the Bilderbergs or the Rockefellers? The Galen Org. The Galen...
2: Org. The, Org. Yeah, or, 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 the, there was a German SS officer by the name of Galen who had a continuing organization that continued on past World War II that uh, was substantively involved in lots of nasty stuff and still is today.
3: Okay. And are they um, set up in this country?
2: They're set up all over the world. But they uh, they mostly answer, if not... To the Illuminati is the only place I know that they answer to anybody. Most people all answer to the Illuminati if there's any power in any country.
3: What about Majestic? Do they get along with the Illuminati?
2: According to my information, Majestic and the Illuminati are not seeing eye to eye over the idea of triaging the population of the planet in order to bring the population down to a workable level or it's safe to have life, we're, we're approaching a very high number, around 7 billion people, and they would like to triage a bunch of the population and Majestic, which is mostly U.S. military people and some other foreigners, uh, don't want to see that. They, 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 they're not in favor of mass assassination by AIDS viruses and stuff like that.
3: So this is a good side to the Majestic 12?
2: It's the only good side I know of. Okay, <laughs> because I know side.
3: you're not you're not real friendly with them.
2: I am friendly with a couple of the members of it, uh, but I'm not friendly with their programs to destabilize some of my businesses. So okay. They, they were very nasty last year, and we almost ended up whacking each other, and it didn't happen because of the cia safe house agreement that protected me and saved my life actually so i'm very 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 indebted to the cia
3: so what can you tell us about why why you don't get along with majestic like what is it that puts you guys at odds
0: thank you for listening to episode 182 of jfk the enduring secret